Well, it's good to be with you this evening. Greetings from Hill City Baptist Church in faraway Peterborough, Ontario. I remember as I was sitting here, my first experience in a Barbadian church. It was, uh, I think it was a Wesleyan church up near the airport. And uh, we had some friends who attended. And I can't remember, I remember the preacher was a young man. He was very passionate. And I appreciated that. But he kept saying this phrase over and over and over. And every time he said it, it was so distracting to me. And he was preaching and I was like, oh, this is good. This is good stuff. I mean, I don't know if it was really good stuff, but it seemed good at the time. He kept saying cheese on bread. But that was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. I don't know if you remember this, John, but he, he would always stop and say cheese on bread. And, and I'm thinking, what does that have to do with Jonah? And over and over, and he's preaching through a narrative, and he would just stop and say cheese on bread. And uh, I couldn't help but think that. But it is a privilege to be preaching in Barbados and to be sharing the word with you all this evening. It is a joy to be here and to see that um, in some small way our church can support you guys. I want you to know that we do pray for you. We think of you. We pray for you often. And, and if there's any way that we can serve you, we would be happy to do that. There are two things they say that are certain in death and life. They're certain in life. What are those things? Death and taxes. There's two things. No matter where you live, it seems, you can count on. These will be realities in your life. You will die, and before you die, you will pay taxes. <laughs> and maybe you would lump this under the taxes portion, but I would say there's a third thing that is true, living in this world, for most people. That is, that there will be suffering. It may come in different ways, it may come in different times. It may look different person to person, to the degree to which you suffer, uh, may be different. And Well, it, it is different, person to person. But it is certain in this fallen world that you will face affliction, that you will face suffering. And as a Christian, that is no different in one sense. But as a Christian, the way we face that and what that means for us is entirely different. We will face death and we will face taxes and we will face suffering. Whether we face it as a result of the curse of the fallen creation or the rage of our great enemy or the persecution of a hostile world or even the battle with our own flesh, we will face it. And as Peter points out this evening, we need to face it with faith. I want to share with you this evening what it means to face suffering with faith. That's where we're going tonight. How to suffer with faith. Many today would revolt against the reality of this suffering. They, they hear this intro and they think, this doesn't sound Christian. Didn't Jesus die and rise to defeat all our enemies? Doesn't Christ's kingdom mean the end of all that would harm us? And the Christian response is yes and no. As with all errors, is a part truth in this prosperity gospel. The problem, there's multiple problems, but the main one has to do with the place in the story that we find ourselves. Those statements are true. Christ has defeated all of our enemies. Christ's kingdom means the end to all that would harm us one day. It depends on where we find ourselves in this story. It is true. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Chapter 411 in this chapter, in this book. And in this passage, he ends, to him be currently the dominion forever and ever from this point forward. Amen. 
And yet there's a sense in which this reality has not been brought to its completion. Or as the writer of Hebrews fleshes out this idea, you crowned him, God speaking of the Son, with glory and honor and placed everything under his feet at his ascension. When God subjected all things to him, he left nothing outside his control. Everything is under the dominion, is subject to King Jesus. That is a reality. Yet, anticipating the objection, at present we do not see everything subject to him. Everything is subject to him. There is not one square inch over all of creation over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not cry mine, the Dutchman Kuiper, right? And yet, there's a disconnect. We do not presently see all things subject to him, but we do see Jesus, he goes on, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned, not just future, now with glory and honor, because he suffered death. Christ is king and he established his kingdom through a cross and resurrection. And the pattern of the kingdom, this side of his coming, is one of suffering and faith. Looking to the grace that will be revealed at his coming. There is a pattern through the scriptures and especially in this letter of suffering, then glory, humility, then exaltation. Peter writes in chapter 111 of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Suffering and glory. Some might respond at this point, yes, that's true of Jesus Christ, but he suffered so that that wouldn't be our pattern. He suffered and died and rose so that we wouldn't experience that. But he says explicitly the opposite. He suffered to leave you that example. Chapter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, what? To health and wealth, prosperity, freedom from suffering and afflictions. What have you been called to, Christian? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, you might follow his steps. To follow in the steps of a crucified king means to suffer. It doesn't only mean to suffer, but it involves suffering. The example that Jesus left his people involved suffering. Peter knew this. He saw what the world did to Jesus. He was even told by Jesus, how he would suffer, by what kind of death he would glorify God. Remember John 21. Jesus said this to tell him what kind of death he would glorify God with. Perhaps that is why Peter, inspired by the Spirit, has some of the greatest teaching on suffering in Scripture to offer us. His life as a disciple was lived in the shadow of impending suffering. And as I was sitting there speaking, or sitting there, I was thinking about this. He was not only living in the shadow of that proclamation from Jesus. This is how you will die. Peter failed to suffer faithfully. I will die for you. Do you know this man? I do not know this man. Do you know this man? Do you not know this man? Do you know this man? Do you not know this man? Peter wrote this letter inspired by the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit, as the Scriptures tell us. But he wrote it as Peter, as a man who had failed to walk faithfully in suffering, a man who was restored by the Lord Jesus Christ, and told, when you turn, strengthen your brothers. And the main point of the whole letter of 1 Peter is how to suffer. That's the main theme of 1 Peter. How to suffer by faith. This is a man who had thought about this, who had been taught by Christ himself, had seen 
his example. But for Peter, he knew that to live as a Christian is not only to live in the shadow of suffering, that's not all it is, but in the shadow of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. Suffering is not only a reality for disciples, but it is a gift. He goes even further. He doesn't just say, you need to be realistic about your life. It's going to be difficult. That is not the message. There is a gospel hope throughout this book, woven throughout it, indeed in all of our suffering, that God is sovereign and he uses it as a tool in his gracious and sovereign hand. Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, which is how we all feel. From a minor cold to a financial setback to the loss of a job to the illness in the family. As soon as that hits, it feels like something's wrong. We did something wrong. He says, don't think that way. Is there something strange? Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Why? That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Beloved, I want us to be able to say that we are not surprised and that we can rejoice in hope. I want to strengthen you this evening with the hope of Jesus that while you suffer now or when you suffer then, you will suffer in faith and one day be exalted. I'm going to focus in three particular ways. Peter gives three ways to suffer by faith. With humility, with sober-mindedness, and with hope. With humility, with sober-mindedness, and with hope. Humble yourselves, he said, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We suffer by faith when we refuse to try and maintain the illusion of control over our lives. We trust God to deliver us in his time and in his way. I love what Johnny was saying, God's plan and God's means. God uses suffering to deliver us by removing the prideful illusion of control and replacing it with the more sure hope in God. We live in an anxious age. We live in an anxious age. I don't know if it's like this in Barbados. I mean, admittedly, I'm in a different context. But um, we live in a very secular context in Canada. And there's a philosopher, Charles Taylor, who wrote a lot about secularism and its rise. And he makes an interesting observation. He says, one of the fruit of a culture that rejects transcendence in general, just in every sense, not just Jesus Christ, but rejects the transcendence. There's only the imminent. It's only us. It's only you and me and what we can see. There's here. There's now. That is it. He says, one of the biggest fruit that you will see in that, and I think he's absolutely right, is anxiety. Because we were not created to be God. And what you have if there is no God is you take on the burden yourself of being God. And he is absolutely right. And anxiety is an absolute epidemic. The kids, I'm anxious. Adults, everything is anxious. And part of me used to think this is just ridiculous. And part of it, it is. And, and there are certainly um, predispositions and, and mental health issues that would lead towards that. I'm not downplaying that. But when we take our eyes off of God, when we take our eyes off of our Heavenly Fathers, what we are left with is carrying the burden. We, we haven't removed that. We just place it upon our shoulders and we were not meant to carry that. And the fruit of that will be anxiety. Suffering especially produces anxiety. How am I going to make it through this? How am I going to carry this 
burden and, and Peter's um, encouragement and exhortation to them is to humble themselves, to cast their anxieties. Notice in this passage that he, that he says that we are actually delivered through suffering. Not that we are only delivered out of suffering, but we are actually delivered through suffering. The phrase, the mighty hand of God, is the only place in the New Testament this phrase is used, but it's used repeatedly in the Old Testament to refer to God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. For the Lord God brought you out of Egypt by His mighty hand. Exodus 13, 13, 9. God's mighty hand is His saving, redeeming hand. His delivering hand. It's not just power. It's power with a purpose. And that is the deliverance of His people. Humble yourselves under the saving, delivering, redeeming, loving hand of God. So at the proper time, He may exalt you. All of the suffering that we face is actually a part of our deliverance. It is not only not evidence that we are forsaken, but it is evidence of the opposite, that we are being rescued. Do you know that? That is way different. That is way different than telling you that your suffering is something you can make it through by God's grace. That is way different than telling you that suffering is something God can deliver you out of, which He absolutely can. Peter's going even further to say suffering is something that God is using to deliver you through. It is part of His mighty hand. It is the instrument, it is the means that He is using to deliver you. God is not abandoning you in your suffering. He is doing a million things that you cannot and you will perhaps never understand and you will never see. And it is not your place to know and to understand but to trust. One of those things we see in the Word is humbling us to realize the folly and the illusion of seeking control over our lives, which only leads to anxiety. Instead, we are called to trust Him. God uses suffering. Why? How does this deliver us? Because it realigns our faith and our hope. So what is the connection between suffering and humility? It says the suffering is meant to humble us. Why is this important? Well, he tells us because God exalts the humble. This is one I'll look upon, Isaiah 66 too. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In order for us to be saved by God and exalted by God, we have to humble ourselves before him. We have to confess our need and trust his great power and grace. This is obviously what we do when we come to Christ, when we bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what faith looks like in repentance, confession of sin. There's a humbling that takes place. But this is not only the posture of coming to Jesus. This is the posture of walking with Jesus. This is the posture of the Christian life. And God uses suffering as a way of bringing us to our knees. God uses suffering to keep us in a posture of humility. And it is painful. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. But it is for our good. Look what he says. Why does he humble us? So that we may be exalted. God is allowing suffering in our lives 
in order to humble us, but He is at the same time actually working out our deliverance. He is removing all other false hopes. He is removing misdirected faith in our lives. Peter gets at this in chapter 1. Rejoice for a little, if now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why should you rejoice? So that the reason, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our suffering is a means of God, is a fire that we walk through to refine our faith. That's what he says the purpose is. In that sense, it is a gift because the result of our faith, the result of our faith is praise and honor and glory. So God is not only going to be with us in suffering, God is actually delivering us through it. And the way he's doing it is he is um, not only preserving, but purifying the faith of his people. So that their only hope and their only trust and their only confidence and their only glory is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And those people will be exalted. There's purpose in their suffering. How do we humble ourselves? Well, he says, by casting our anxieties on, on God and not taking them on. Casting our anxieties is the how of humility. It's not only a mental exercise. It's not only a physical posture. It is a coming to God in prayer with all that concerns us. In one sense, the implication of this, I think, is to be anxious, in some sense, is to be prideful. And to humble ourselves means giving God the burdens of what makes us anxious. The psalmist says in Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. He gives his beloved rest. Pride and folly are often seen seeking the right things in the wrong way at the wrong times. The book of Proverbs is all about that. Money, sex, honor, glory. Self-exaltation, the opposite of humility, seeks to exalt ourselves here and now rather than trusting God to exalt us then. Self-exaltation seeks to exalt ourselves by ourselves rather than seeking God's mighty hand of deliverance. I will deliver myself. I will live my life in such a way that I face no suffering. Nothing will make me anxious. We cast our anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for us. How many times have you heard, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know, come and pray to God because He cares about every detail of your life. And, and there's a part truth in that. There's a sense in which God cares about every detail of your life. But sometimes it's spoken as if that's an affirmation of every detail of your life. Right? Tell God everything you want and desire, everything that makes you fear. And God's kind of like patting you on the back, affirming that all of your fears are legit, all your desires are good and true. God definitely doesn't think that. He definitely doesn't think that everything you think is great and everything you want is good and every fear that you have is legitimate. He doesn't believe that. But He does care for you. And I was thinking about this, and, and 
I have the picture of my daughter, and, and my girls love to color. You can hear the coloring supplies at the back and the crayons falling all over the floor. They love to color. It's not only a uh, church technique, they do this at home as well. And every day, my girls come up to me with a new paint, with a new painting, a new drawing with crayons, something. Um, you know, our fridge, the sides are covered, and there's, Beck keeps papers all over the place, more than we can even handle. And every time they come to me, I receive it. And even though it's written, you know, it's colored by a five and a three-year-old, there's nothing particularly, you know, enlightening about it or, or worthy in one sense. The reason I take it is not because I care for the painting. I don't really care for it, but I care for them. And when they come up to me and they say, look, Daddy, I don't think that, gee, I mean, I could never have done that myself. You know, I've never seen, I've never beheld such beauty as you have shown me, great God. Like, we will frame this on the wall. I say, but, but I receive it, and I, I, I lower, I condescend to them, because I care about them. And they care about that. And if they go on to tell me something ridiculous about it, then I'll tell them they're wrong about it. But I will be attentive to them. Because I care for them. And we come to God with our anxieties. We come to God with our cares in the confidence that He cares for us. He cares for you. Casting all our anxieties on Him. And the reason is because He cares for you. If you do not believe that God truly cares for you, you will not cast your anxieties on Him. Just like a child would not go to their father after trying ten times to be ignored. They just stop going. The cross is the surest demonstration of God's care for us. If we ever doubted it, He cares enough to send His Son to die in our place, to rise for us. He cares enough to suffer that we might not ultimately be crushed by the impossible burden of control and fear, but fear freed to trust Him. He died and rose and cared enough to use even our sufferings to deliver us. God cares. And the cross is evidence of that. Cast your anxieties on Him. So, the first way that we suffer is we do so with humility. Second, we suffer with a sober mind. We have a posture of ready resistance. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We need to live like someone is trying to kill us. Because someone is. Do you live like that? I remember watching um, a movie, I forget what it was called, but it's about uh, a man who's brought into this camp in Africa because there's a problem with the lions. And, and you know, there, it's, a, it's a scary movie because the whole time you have this sense that there is a sovereign lion over there. You know, the, just when they think, you know, they've got it or, or they set the perfect plan or they have the men in place, it's, it's back at the hospital, you know, where they weren't looking. And it's kind of the scariest part of this is that there is always a sense of the lion. You know what the worst part of this movie is? They finally get the lion. There was two lions. So I remember watching as a kid being absolutely freaked out by lions. The devil is described this way. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to live 
like someone is trying to kill us. We need to see our suffering could be used as a weapon against us if we don't receive it and walk through it with faith. It wasn't C.S. Lewis. It's often ascribed to him. I don't think he ever said this, but the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making the world believe he doesn't exist. In an anti-supernatural world, in a so-called scientific age, to speak of the devil is, is a strange thing. Even Christians, we can talk about Christian morality, we can talk about the Jesus ethic and how it is good for the world, and that's absolutely true. But if you talk about a personal, real devil, that's gone a little too far. That's pagan. That's backwards. That's not progressive. That's what we used to think about. But Peter says we face an enemy. We do not wage war against flesh and blood. Paul tells us elsewhere. We have an enemy. We need to live like someone is trying to kill us. But despair comes not only from a heightened sense of reality, but a partial sense of reality. I'm going to say that again. Despair happens not from a heightened sense of reality, but a partial sense of reality. The devil is not sovereign. The devil is not ultimate. We need to not only feel the pain of suffering and the reality of an enemy, but hold to the promises of God and the reality of Jesus Christ. Sunday, the Lord's Day, is what I call a sobering up day. You know, the cowboy movies used to take the drunk and dunk him in the horse's trough, and I don't know, that magically makes you sober or something like that. Sunday is a sober up day, a spiritual sober up day, where all week we've been living our lives in unbelief, if we haven't been walking by faith and walking by the Spirit, as if these realities aren't true, as if there is not an enemy who's always trying to kill us, and the Word of God sobers us up. It prepares our mind to see things as they really are. That's what sober-minded means. It means you don't have impaired vision. It means it's not blurry. It is accurate. It is real. The Word of God gives us the full picture of reality. Peter knew what it meant to be watchful and how important this is. We read about his experience in Matthew 26. And he came to the disciples, Jesus, and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Be sober-minded. You have an enemy. Be watchful. Watchful. In prayer, watchful in the word. We use, we often say, you know, we fell into sin. Nobody falls into sin. We walked into sin. You know, we by the time we fall and go off the cliff, we've been ten kilometers down that road. We just haven't been watchful. It felt like a stumble, it felt like a fall, it felt sudden, but there's nothing sudden about it. And Peter's saying we need to live our lives the opposite of drunkenness, of not being sober-minded, of not looking around, of not being watchful. We need to be watchful for three attacks. Suffering, how is it affecting us? Is it being used to throw us on the rock of Christ? Or is it bringing despair from the little things? Johnny mentioned the cold. I mean... The man cold is one of the worst afflictions you can face, it feels like. When you're dying, you get a head cold. It's just, I'm done, you know. I'm ready to see the Lord now. <laughs> I feel that way anyways. But it is amazing how suffering all of a sudden throws us off. 
that, that we make excuses why I can't be in the Word, why I can't bring prayer, why I can't be in fellowship. I mean, thank you for not shaking hands if you're sick. But, but, but all of a sudden we feel that we are totally incapacitated. We still need to be watchful. Watchful not only for suffering, but sin. Where are we being tempted? What did we yesterday or an hour ago see as evil and now see less evil? What, what did we care about and felt so strongly about caring for others, loving others, and now feel so apathetic, which is the third one? Apathy. Are we falling asleep? He says when we face suffering, we need to face it sober-mindedly and being watchful. We don't just get through suffering. We don't just hold on. We need to be watchful through it. And in suffering, that's the hardest time to do that. And I didn't write this, but that's why you need the church. That's why you need the body of Christ. I didn't make any application point of this, and that was a mistake. You can't do this by yourself. You can't do this without Jesus, and you can't do this without His people. You need other people in your weakness and you're, you're not sober-minded, you're not being watchful, you need for them to watch you. You need them to be there, you're falling asleep to poke you, to keep you up when you can't stay awake. You need brothers and sisters. Lastly, we do not only suffer, but we suffer in hope. We suffer by faith, by having our perspective shaped by the promises and future hope that God offers. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We keep in mind in all of this that Christ has dominion. The devil does not have dominion. The world does not have dominion. The flesh does not have dominion. Authorities and rulers and principalities don't have dominion. The Lord Jesus Christ has dominion. Anything that you face is under His dominion. And He is working the story of His people, the redemption of His people, towards one glorious end. He promises that He is working, that He is guarding us by His power in the opening chapter of the book. And so we ought to keep our hope not on what is present, but what is before us. It says in chapter 113, prepare your minds for action. How do you prepare your mind for action? And be sober-minded. How do we be sober-minded? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The problem with the prosperity gospel, one of them, there's many of them, is not that it promises too much, but it promises too little. You need, to, you need to get this, because this is rampant. The prosperity gospel is not promising more than the real gospel. And we promise less because we're more realistic and conservative. The gospel promises infinitely more than the counterfeit of the prosperity gospel promises. Despite the claims for health, wealth, and prosperity, I have yet to hear, and maybe you have, a preacher claim and promise that Christians will not physically die. That their present bodies will live forever. That they have immortality in these bodies. We of course know that though he dies, yet shall he live. If he believes in Christ. And Christians will never die united with Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about this body. 
So the best a prosperity preacher can promise you is a fleeting existence. A temporary existence of pleasure. Whereas Peter is saying, we need to have the opposite perspective. We're looking to the long game. Putting your hope in this, what is, what is a vapor. Scripture calls this a vapor. We're going to look back on this, and it will be nothing. It will be nothing. It will be like a, a, a puff of smoke. It's just gone. To, to bank all of your hopes and try to get the most that you can out of vapor is utter folly. This life is temporary. Don't set your hope on a vapor. Don't set your hope on a vapor. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. Our suffering, he tells us, is temporary. Look at the words he used. You've suffered a little while. No suffering feels like that. Suffering tends to feel like it will never end. But part of how you go, keep going, part of how you live as a Christian by faith in the Word of God is you tell yourself, this is a little while. My dad always had a phrase, he said, this too shall pass. He always said that. Not seeing a light at the end of the tunnel is a paralyzing thing. It's probably one of the worst things about suffering when your vision is so narrow and all you see is the pain you feel. And there is no hope of ever getting out of that tunnel. But for Christians, all suffering is temporary. All of it. That's why he calls it in Second Corinthians a momentary affliction. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are seen. For the things that are seen are transient, meaning they won't last. They won't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. I remember when I was 16, the idea of getting a car is like the best thing. Your young man was, was every, I mean, most young men I've, I've ever talked to want to get a car. And uh, a car is not really an asset financially. It's a liability, if you're honest. You know, it'll keep you from getting, the bank might treat it as an asset. They'll say, oh, look, we've lent you this much money, but it's a liability. It only depreciates. You, you shouldn't invest in a car as a 16-year-old. You shouldn't get that summer job, you know, and think, i got a couple years before college. I mean, I'll make it back. That is a terrible investment to make. And many young men make it. I mean, even in Barbados, I see people with cars more expensive than their houses. You know, many people. I'm like, man, that's a nicer car than I'm ever going to own. Probably worth five times as much as that house is. That's a bad investment. Because you know what? That, the land that house is on is going to appreciate and that car is pretty sweet now, but the 10%, whatever they charge you on interest down here, it's insane. And that car's value is just going to drop. Peter's using Paul, in this case, is saying, don't put your hope, don't look to things that are transient, 
that will not last. Don't invest in those things. That is, that, is a, that is a ridiculous thing. This is a value proposition he's making. But the things that are unseen and eternal, that is the future grace. Notice what else he says here. This affliction, this suffering is not only temporary, which it is, and we need to remind ourselves when we're going through it, this too shall pass. But it is actually working for us. It is, as he says, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says elsewhere that these sufferings is not even worth comparing. Think about that. The worst thing you can face in this life is not only not is, is what's going to be coming to us will be way better. It's not worth comparing. No eyes seen, no ears heard the things that God has prepared. You have no idea what is waiting for you on the other side of that tunnel. But it is not worth comparing to what you're walking through. Not worth comparing. And as you're walking, God is preparing you for that. Think about that. Every step in the dark, every step through pain, by faith in the Son of God, is doing something in you. Is changing you. Is preparing you for a greater joy. Revelation of Jesus. There's purpose in pain. That is a uniquely Christian message. What's he going to do? He will restore. There is a certainty. It is not only temporal. It is not only God is preparing us through it. But there is a certainty of restoration. He he roots our deliverance ultimately in God's grace. In God's calling. Means it is not based on our works or even our steps. Our efforts, our abilities by His grace. He is guarding us by faith. It says in the opening of the book. Therefore, the gift that is given cannot be lost in God's calling, which is irrevocable. He will finish what He started. Those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. There is a certainty to the restoration of God's people. By God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. First Peter 1, 5. What is going to happen in that last time? He will restore us, he says, means basically put things right. The world is not the way it ought to be, and by God's grace, the world is not the way it will be. We keep hope that the world will one day be put to rights. All the sad things, as Tolkien said, will come untrue. No more suffering, no more sadness, no more sin, no more destruction, no more disease and decay, just joy. He will confirm or empower When Christ rules in His kingdom on this earth with His people, when we dwell with Him and He with us, we will not feel the paralyzing weakness we feel when we suffer. We will be empowered. He will will strengthen. means more firm and unchanging in attitude and belief. If you feel like Peter... So confident in days in your faith in Christ and so scared and failing in other days. Hold hope that He will one day strengthen you. One day our faith will be our sight. You will see Him face to face and we'll be like Him. But we'll see Him as He is. We'll have no more doubts, no more fears, 
No more backsliding. No more forgetting. No more intoxicating. No more being slothful. Only joy. That's our future. And He will establish. He will put us on a solid foundation. We will see Christ, the cornerstone of His temple, His people. And we will be secure. We won't feel the world come out from under us. I'm going to close with lines from a hymn. God moves in a mysterious way by William Cowper. A man who had seen and experienced suffering. And he says this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make him plain. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head.